Um, Lord, we thank you um, that there is a great assurance that Christ is ours. We pray, Lord, that as we uh, look at your word uh, this morning, uh, that we would come away uh, comforted, that we would come away strengthened, um, that we would come away with greater assurance um, that what you have done uh, pays the price for us, that counts uh, for us. Please help us to be uh, strengthened in our faith. Help me as I speak. Help me to be uh, faithful and clear. Uh, and will we all come away, Lord, built up as your people, uh, better able to go and serve you uh, in the world around us. Amen. What does um, real faith look like? What does real faith look like? We heard last week, didn't we, that the, the life of faith is one of self-denial, a life trusting in God's promise. Or in other words, it's a life of waiting, waiting for that promise to come true. And a life of worshipping, worshipping by dedicating our lives to the promise maker. Faith is waiting and faith is worshipping. And we see this clearly in the story of Abraham, the man of faith, which we see in Galatians. He leaves behind his family land and all that he knows because of God's promise. He lives a life of self-denial because God makes a promise, a promise of people, place and blessing, a promise that through his people, his family, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And yet we saw, if you look at verse 7 of chapter 12, that this promise is not going to be fulfilled in his lifetime, is it? It's going to be given to his offspring. The land is going to give it to his offspring, not to him. And besides, one doesn't become a great nation in simply one generation. And so Abraham begins the life of self-denial, but it's a life of waiting, a tough task of waiting for that promise to come true. But he does it, waiting and worshipping, trusting that the promise will be fulfilled and honouring the one who made such promise. He's looking to a, a city with foundations, Hebrews 11 tells us, whose builder and architect was God. And for those of us who are believers today, we stand in that same tradition. Galatians tells us we are his children, his heirs. We are blessed along with him, and so we stand in that same tradition. We too, like Abraham before us, like the early church in Hebrews, we wait and we worship for that great promise to come, for that city that is to come. It all sounds so glamorous and exciting, doesn't it? People, place, and blessing, great promises, great fulfillments, a great God. And yet things are rarely that straightforward, are they? Waiting and worshipping is hard. The wait is long and arduous. We get bored and restless. Our attention turns to the immediate, the now. And we we forget to worship amidst the stresses of day-to-day life. It's a bit like this uh, one time at a wedding. Kind of second year of uni, first one of the first weddings you get invited to for myself, not for my family. Very exciting, good friends getting married, you're all dressed up, it's very nice. Um, And yet the wedding starts at 12. What's that about? What are you going to do about lunch? That's the big question. It's a great day, but you spend the whole time panicking. What am I going to do for lunch? So you you start sensible to have a big brunch. We'll load up with pancakes, a bit of bacon, maybe some cereal as well if we're feeling feeling, uh, exciting. Um, so you're happy, you get to the wedding, you're filled up, filled with excitement. But it, it becomes quite tough, doesn't it? You're there, the ceremony's dragging on, dragging on, people are happy, but there's lots of singing and you're, you're getting hungry, you feel the growl coming. 
the confetti comes, you start to walk, walk outside and cheer on. But by kind of two o'clock, you're really struggling. You're really, really wishing you'd had a proper lunch. And the reception's only, only an hour away, maybe, maybe. But you're feeling very peckish. Now, those of you who are more experienced wedding goers than I was are saying, just sit tight. There's cake coming. There's food coming. You'll be okay. But I did not do that. Went off in search of a McDonald's. And a chicken nugget meal later, you're feeling much happier about life. The wedding feels good and exciting again. Uh, until you get to the reception, you're having a little drink, and within 20 minutes of getting there, you're being told to take your seat, and you're panicking now. You're like, I've just had a full-on McDonald's. What am I going to do? Out comes a lovely three-course meal, one of the best. You start your way through the starter, halfway through, and you're in real trouble. Then comes this amazing joint of lamb, succulent, hanging off the bone, dripped in gravy and roast potatoes. Sorry if you're a vegetarian. Um, it was incredible. It was delicious, and yet it was everything we dreamed of, but we couldn't enjoy it. We could barely eat it because we were so full. We'd taken our eyes off the promise of a delightful wedding reception and banquet. We got itchy feet, and we were impatient. Instead of sitting tight, we traded it all in for a bang average McDonald's. And, and a bit silly, but doesn't our faith often, often feel like this? We don't wait. We don't worship. We take our eyes off the prize for the immediate gratification and the instant uh, relief. And it's not always for something as cheap and silly and, uh, as, as McDonald's, is it? Uh, sometimes we do give in to the fleeting pleasures of this life, but other times we are just worn down by the daily grind, by the suffering of our friends and our family, by the return of that sickness or sin that just seems to plague our life, by the unexpected pain of bereavement or betrayal, by stress and cynicism, hunger and want. And we question, don't we? What does this mean for the promise? Are we included? Will God really deliver and be faithful? How can I wait and worship any longer? Surely that was the last time I could wander. Maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you don't have faith. Uh, and you're, you're just here to explore what it is. Uh, and you're thinking, what, what, what's going on? This seems farcical. How can I believe in what you say? How can I commit to a life? of waiting and worshiping, when it looks so hard, and when even Christians find it hard and don't seem to uh, find it as straightforward as they would like. And amidst all these questions, all the strife and the wandering of our lives, it's where we need to look back to Abraham, the man of faith. What does real faith look like? Our first point today, if you're, you're taking notes, real faith is faltering. Real faith is faltering. Look with me at our passage again. I'm just going to read from verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. The promise has been given to Abraham, isn't it? That's what you looked at last week. Abraham's followed the call. He's waiting. He's worshipping. Things are going well uh, un until they're not, until famine comes along in verse 10. 
And, and we're not talking about not being able to buy kale and quinoa like some people in London are complaining about. We mean famine. It's severe. There's no food, no crops, none of the staples you need to get by. I guess many of us haven't experienced famine, but if you think back 18 months ago to the beginning days of the pandemic, the fear of going to a supermarket and not being able to find the medicine you need or the, the toilet roll you need or the chopped tomatoes or the bread flour. Um, imagine that, but worse, uh, famine is here. And so Abraham does what any of us might do. He takes matters into his own hands and goes in search of better. He heads towards Egypt. Now, we're not told explicitly that Abraham goes AWOL here. But if we're paying attention, we should, I think, have just the slightest question about this plan of action. God has just given the most amazing, incredible promise to Abraham, a promise to give him land, to make his family great, and to bless him and the world through them. The living God has spoken to him. The living God has provided for him. And so far, it's gone well. And yet he moves on. For all intents and purposes, it looks like Abraham forgets the promise. It looks like he rejects God's plan. And he goes in search of greener grass. And yet the, the plan spirals, doesn't it? As they head to Egypt, there is another problem. They're not just escaping the threat of famine. But as they come into Egypt, there's a very new problem created by that. There's a threat from the Egyptians uh, themselves, yeah, which you see in verse 12. He's, he's fearful um, that Sarai's beauty uh, makes him a target. Remove him, and then they can have Sarai to himself, themselves. And everything that Abraham's worked so carefully for would fall apart. And so he comes up with a, a seemingly cunning plan. Verse 13, say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. He's going to offer his wife to the pleasure of the Egyptians, so that he can live, and, and notice how it spirals, it's not just so that he can live, but so that he can be treated well. What on earth is Abraham doing? Has he so quickly forgotten God's promise that he will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you? Let alone the fact that God promises a great nation, and if Abraham is killed off straight away, that falls flat. Abraham's faith falters. He forgets God's promises, and he takes matters into his own hands. In the hurt and the strife of famine, he gives up waiting. In the threat of violence and hostility from the Egyptians, he forgets God's promised protection and sells his wife out instead. Seems crazy. How has he fallen so far so quickly? And yet, actually, it seems like it pays off, doesn't it? Um, Abraham's plan seems to work well. Look at verses 14 to 16. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake. And Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Just as he planned, everything falls into place. The Egyptians notice Sarai's beauty, and their word quickly spreads, spreads to the Pharaoh, and she's brought to him. She's taken into his palace. And Abraham does well, doesn't he? Look at verse 16. He gains uh, 
sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. He acquires a great deal of wealth from this little scheme. His life is protected. He's doing well. And yet his family, that God, the family that God has promised so much to, is splintered and separated. Abraham uses and degrades Sarai, and the promise looks in peril. From where will this blessing now come? And I wonder, did you notice as we went through the, the first time, verse 17, Pharaoh and his household are cursed because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. This family that is meant to be a blessing to the nations has brought curses and destruction to their neighbours. Abraham's faith falters. He takes matters into his own hands. In search of the immediate blessing, he forsakes the future promise. He brings damage and destruction to his family, devastation and pain to those around him. Blessing seems far away. And the, the, the kind of cognitive disconnect going on here, the, the kind of crazy nature of his plan is, is seen even with Pharaoh. Verses 18 to 20, Pharaoh says, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? Even Pharaoh gets how weird this plan is. How wrong it is. And just like that, Abraham's plan falls apart. He's kicked out the land, loses the favour of Pharaoh. What is he doing? He falters, he fails. And if you trace through the story of this man through the Bible, you see this isn't even the only time he does it. Look at Genesis chapter 20, uh, and you'll see him do the very same trick again. And this family that's meant to be a blessing, his son does the very same thing in Genesis 26. What is going on? How can this be uh, the way of faith? And yet it is, isn't it? Because Galatians 3, the New Testament, Hebrews 11, tells us that Abraham is the man of faith. How can this be? So real faith falters. That's our first point. Our second point, real faith rests on a faithful God. Real faith rests on a faithful God. As we get to the end of verse 20, all seems lost, doesn't it? Abraham's left the land. He's broken his family. He's brought curses to his neighbours. And he's forgotten about the grand promise maker. But God is faithful. He will keep his promise. God made his promise to Abraham before he had faith, and he will continue to be faithful to him, even when Abraham's faith falters. Look with me at verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. But the Lord. The only time in the whole story that God is mentioned. But the Lord. Abraham falters, and yet God steps in. Firstly, God steps in, in in judgment, doesn't he? He inflicts serious disease on Pharaoh and his household. And in many ways, God is therefore faithful to his promise, is he not? God fulfills his promise to curse those that curse you, to bless those that bless you. Pharaoh and his household pay the price for messing with God's chosen people. They suffer, they degrade and demean Sarai. They damage the family. And so they are cursed for the destruction they have caused. 
And yet as Pharaoh pays the price for his sin, Abraham is rebuked for his. Abraham faces judgment from Pharaoh, doesn't he? He sits under his authority and is suitably punished. He's sent away with his wife, verse 20. God acts in judgment and fulfills the promise that he made to protect Abraham. But God also acts in grace. God steps in to fulfill his promise to these people. He could have very easily turned his back. He could have cut them out of his promise and gone in search of others. Others who'd be more faithful. But no, he he is faithful even when Abraham's faith falters. He offers the protection he he said he would. And he treats those that have abused them as he said he would. God is faithful. And even as Abraham is sent away from Egypt, sent away, punished by the Pharaoh, his worst fears do not come true. He's not killed, and they do not take Sarah for himself. Instead, he's sent away and nudged back in the right direction. That as you look in the next chapter, we'll see him returning to the promised land. And despite his wrongful ways, his dodgy acquisitions, he sent away with everything he had. God is merciful to him. God acts in judgment to bring Abraham back on track. And God acts in grace to bring Abraham back on track. Back to the promised land and back to the Lord, as you'll see in the next chapter. God is faithful. Abraham's faith, his life of self-denial, his life of waiting and worshipping, falters and wanes. And yet God remains faithful to him. God continues to bring about his promise. Real faith is not about the one who is blessed, but about the one who blesses. The faithful God, despite the faltering faith of his people. And this faithful God will remain faithful to his promise, even when his people falter and wander. But that's not all. Real faith uh, rests not just on a faithful God, but real faith, our third point, rests on a fulfilled promise. Real faith rests on a fulfilled promise. Because the question is, right, if, if Abraham, Abraham might be going back to the promised land, he might have got away with this in, in some ways. God might remain faithful to him. But that promise of salvation for the world doesn't look very good right now, does it? And yet, Abraham's failure doesn't invalidate that promise. He falters, and yet God steps in with judgment and with grace. And as we saw last week, and as we were reminded at the beginning, the promise to Abraham is not immediate. It comes through his offspring, 12 verse 7. And it's as we look at that offspring, as his offspring, that we see God not just step in to correct uh, and bring them back on step, but God step in to deliver his promise in full. As we look to this man of faith, We see he falters, and yet God remains faithful. We see that in God's faithfulness, promises do not go unfulfilled. That though Abraham faltered, there was one who didn't. One who exhibited perfect faith at all times and in all circumstances. The one who was to be a blessing to the nation, Abraham's distant offspring, was not Abraham. It did not depend on him. He was the man of faith, the man who was blessed and the one through whom blessing would come. But he himself was not the blessing. Um, You can turn if you want to Hebrews 5, but but if not, I'll read it now. Um, Verses 7 to 10 say this. 
During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was hurt because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The fulfillment of God's promise never rested with Abraham. It rested instead on Christ, the one who, uh, had rev- who was reverently submissive, the one who was obedient in all times and in all circumstances, the one who never wandered or wavered. He was always faithful, even when facing trials and temptation. The one who cried, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. And Christ did that so that those like Abraham, those who wander, who falter in their faith, might enjoy God's promised blessing, the eternal salvation for all. As Abraham and then his descendants waited and worshipped, God delivered. We look at Abraham, don't we, and we see a faltering faith, but then we see those comforting words, but the Lord. But the Lord didn't falter, but the Lord doesn't falter. And so we return to our question, what does real faith look like? I think Abraham shows us that real faith is not pretty. It's not straightforward and it's not simple. It doesn't guarantee a straightforward or easy life. It doesn't mean there'll be no hiccups, waywardness, or that real faith falters and it wanes. And yet the success of God's promise does not depend on him. And it doesn't depend on us either. And so there's great hope. There's great hope for the sinful and the suffering. There's hope for those of us that know our failings, whether we faltered for the pleasures of sin or because of the grind of life. Our actions do not invalidate God's promise. We have a faithful God and a fulfilled promise, so take heart. Recognize your wandering and turn back to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. God acts to bring about his promise and bless those on whom he has bestowed his favour. And if you are trusting in Christ this morning, even if your fake faith is weak and faltering, even if it's waning, even if you know you've been wandering, God will deliver what he has promised. God will be faithful to you. And that's such a relief, is it not? That's such a relief. Because it can be so tiring, can't it? We, we judge ourselves. We are judged by others. If you're anything like me, you'll often find yourself cast into sadness and despair at the state of our own lives, the state of the world around us. Surely this time I've messed up. That's, that's it. That can't be it. The promise is no more. I cannot belong to God. Surely this is not what faith looks like. But no, look to the man of faith. Your future hope does not rest on you. Not one bit. Not one tiny bit. This promised world of blessing cannot be stopped. Look at Abraham and see a tale of God's faithfulness. Look at the man of faith and take heart that his life resembles ours, resembles yours, resembles mine. And yet God blessed him. Take heart, turn to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and ask for help. There's great hope, there's great encouragement. And yet there's a great challenge there too, isn't there? 
there's a challenge for the proud and the self-righteous. And in many ways, this is just the other side of the coin. When we're doing well, we are puffed up. We're self-righteous. We're proud because we think our faith depends on us. And when we do badly, we get despairing and sad because we think, um, again, it depends on us. But we cannot rest on our own performance. We cannot rely on ourselves. That's not the way to bring up blessing. It's not the way to save the world and beat death. Look at Abraham's life. See the lesson. Taking matters into your own hands does not end well. It brings despair and pain. For those of us that like to think we can do it, that we can be enough, we need to look to this man of faith and learn the folly of that idea. We must recognise our weakness and the faltering nature of our own faith. We need to see that Christ alone is the one who brings about blessing. He's the one in whom God's promise is fulfilled. And that's a lesson we'll see time and time again as we trace the life of this man of faith. And for those of us that are sitting in judgment on Abraham right now, thinking, how could you be so stupid? How could you go so far wrong? And I must confess, that was me for a lot of this week. Is me. We see his wandering, his silliness, and we rush to condemn him. How could you be so stupid? How could you abandon God? We rush to puff up self and exalt one's own worthiness before God. And yet, are we not just like him? This faltering man was God's chosen means to bring about blessing and salvation to the world. His chosen means to bring about Christ and the blessing that he would give. The Lord acted to keep him on track, maintaining his faith through judgment and grace. What he did was not right. But are we not just like him? Do we not wander and wane? If the trial of famine might not be our reality in 21st century UK, other trials and temptations will come our way. Sickness, sadness, unemployment, isolation, mental health issues, family breakdown. We will falter and we will fail. And if we think we haven't and we think we won't, then we delude ourselves. But the answer is the same. Look to the man of faith. And if you're a non-Christian here, uh, just exploring what faith is, tempted to dismiss this idea you can do no better than look at Abraham for figuring out what Christianity is about. Christians, those with faith, we're not perfect, uh, moralizing people. Perhaps sometimes we do put on that image. But no, we're, we're men and women of faith. People who falter, people who fail, people that go wandering. But people who God, regardless, is faithful to and fulfills his promises to we're not an elite club of goody-goodies. We're more like a hospital ward for the sick and the broken. A hospital ward where we recognise our brokenness, our faltering nature, our need. And a place where we put our faith in God, the one who is faithful, the one who does fulfil his promises. So what is real faith? Real faith is faltering. And at times it can look maddeningly AWOL. But real faith never depends on me, never depends on you. Real faith rests on a faithful God and his fulfilled promise. So take heart and be encouraged. Take note and be humbled. Take check and turn to him in thanksgiving that it is his work that counts for our faith, not ours. Abraham, the man of faith, shows us what real faith looks like. It encourages us that though he goes wandering, 
He is very much like us, and yet God is faithful to him. And his life is a reminder that our faith does not depend on us, but on God. So let's be people that take heart and give thanks. Let's do that now. Lord, we thank you so much that our faith does not depend on us. We thank you that though we uh, falter, that though we fail, you are faithful to your people and you fulfill your promise in Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people that take great hope and comfort from that, that you would uh, eradicate our pride and our sense of self-righteousness or of despair. And, Lord, that you would be a people, you would, be, you would bring us back, that we might be a people who um, remain fixed and firmly focused on Christ. Help us not to wander, help us not to wane. And yet help us to take heart that when we do, you will hold us fast. Amen.